Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My patient today is Anya von Bremsen. She's the author of the brand new book, National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home. She's also the author of multiple books, and one of them is one of my favorite culinary memoirs called Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, which I highly recommend if you haven't read it. In today's episode, Anya and I talk all about how she became a food writer. It was a total accident. I was a concert pianist. That was my first career. The World Cup. I don't root for Russia because it's politically reprehensible. I don't root for the States because they don't play very good soccer. And meeting Roz Chast, who did the cover of her book. And she says, oh, do you happen to know the author? This woman, Anya von Bremsen. I said, no, I'm the author. I'm Anya. All right. Without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Anya von Bremsen. Well, Anya, it's so nice to meet you. Congratulations on your brand new book, National Dish, which just got published. I mean, when we're recording this yesterday, right? Yes, it came out yesterday. And thanks so much for having me on. Of course. So how does it feel to finally, this book took a lot of work. So how does it feel to have it out in the world now? It's always an amazing feeling. Of course, you're totally nervous about how it's going to be received because it's a very lonely process. Mm-hmm. Writing a book, even though this book was all about socializing with people and um, you don't know, mm-hmm. you know, you're releasing something into the wild, but we got a great start. We got an amazing review from the New York Times. And I saw so- that. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. So it started an important conversation about the stuff that's in the book. So for people who haven't read it yet or seen it, I mean, the if I can just do the quick elevator pitch of the book, it seems like the subject is about food myths or about national, what we perceive as national dishes of different countries and the real stories behind those dishes, such as pizza in Italy and tapas in Spain and ramen in Japan. So how did you come up with the idea for this book? Where did it all begin for you? I've always been fascinated uh, with the subject of food and national identity. Mm-hmm. It seemed like something so important. And um you know, nationalism and nation building, because when you think about it, the nation is a fairly recent concept, you know, Mm -hmm. pretty much dates back to the French Revolution, right? Uh, Because before that, there were empires, which were multicultural entities. Uh, So the whole idea of a national cuisine is fairly young. And when I wrote my very first cookbook, Please to the Table, about the diverse cuisines of the former USSR, which mm-hmm. was an empire, you know, there was Uzbekistan, Estonia, Kazakhstan, 15 republics. Uh, but as that book came out in 1990, that empire went bust. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, <laughs> so right. People were joking to me, like, why don't you turn it into a tear off calendar? Because all these republics that belong to the empire kept separating. <laughs> That's actually a good idea. I think you could still sell that today. Exactly. And so, um, as time went by, I kept returning to what was now what were now post-Soviet spaces, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, Ukraine. And um, you saw how they kind of reconceived their cuisines as their national cuisines, not part of the empire, and how cuisine was such an important part of this very new nation building. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about it ever since. And um, now we live in a very paradoxical and interesting situation where the globalization is so incredibly intense. And yes. it's well, uh, I mean, I'm always struck, you know, when you go to some remote village in the Andes in Peru or an indigenous village in Mexico, 
there's Pepsi and Coke. Right. Uh, in Mexico, for instance, uh, I've discovered that you know what, what they're eating on daily basis is not even the tortilla, which is of mm-hmm. course important, but it's something they call tallarines cuadrados, square noodles. And guess what it is? <laughs> Ramen. Oh, that's interesting. So wherever it's, we go. Yeah. It's funny because I went to um, Paris for the first time with my husband uh, or his first time not too long ago. And when we got there, it was like all of the hipster bars and coffee shops and all the things that we had in Brooklyn and L.A. um, where we lived uh, were just it was just the same different versions. So the globalization is just it feels like even in the quote unquote cool sector, um, it's still. This is is how I start my book. I start that. Uh, I said that on the one hand, we have this corporate imperialism of McDonald's and Burger King that you find it everywhere, you know, the invasion of the corporate American food. But on the hipster level is what I call the global Brooklyn community. Yes. The same sourdough Instagrams, you know, the same craft beer, the same hipster uh, items du jour. So what what I write is on the one hand, we have this situation. On the other hand, as a reaction to that globalization and to the loss of identity, we've never been more protective of our so-called heritage. We've never been more, you know, we never had a bigger compulsion to tie food to place, mm-hmm. to see out the origin stories of the same ramen and pizza, you know, this super globalized food. Um, it's, you know, the genius loci, the, the sort of the idea of tasting food in its, in its place of origin. So I wanted to explore those myths, mm-hmm. you know, given how recent the nations are. What 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 are the real stories behind all these dishes? Well, it's interesting because I'm a huge fan of um, your first book or your first memoir, which was uh, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. And you know, I read that years ago, and I still I still remember so much from that book. Um, so I feel like I know so much about you and what you're bringing to this new book. But I can't help but think about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, right now. And because Olia Hercules, the cookbook author, I bought her books um, to support her and, and her family in Ukraine. But, you know, it's interesting in terms of nationalism and identity. I, I, I immediately thought of that because of, um, you know, how Ukraine as its own entity now is sort of being is well is perceived now as it's something we're rooting for and and, and hoping for. But I'm curious in terms of what's going on in the world right now, has writing this book impacted how you're viewing um, current events? Well, since we're talking about Ukraine, yeah, the epilogue of National Dish is about borscht and mm-hmm. is exactly about me, you know, thinking about borscht on the eve, you know, and on the day of the invasion mm-hmm. and how my feelings about borscht change uh, and my mother's feelings about borscht change and how our identities changed because my mom's family, my family, a lot of our fellow uh, ex-Soviet emigres, um, we are Russian-speaking, Russian, Russian-speaking Jew, American, um, now Americanized Jews. Yeah, A lot of us come from Ukraine. My mother's family is from Ukraine. Um, but we always, you know, in fact, the Guardian is running the entire chapter tomorrow. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Yeah, which is 5,000 words. Um, and uh, so I woke up on the morning of, of the invasion, after the invasion, you know, and amidst like all the crying and doom scrolling, um, there's a pot of my mother's Porsche that sat in my fridge. And I just suddenly think, whose dish is it? Mm-hmm. You know, and something that I've been reflecting on for five years as I was working on this book suddenly landed on my own t- table with this like this vis- visceral searingly painful intensity 
like who has the right to claim it as heritage. So that entire chapter goes into that issue, how something that was supposed to evoke the comforts of home for us mm-hmm. became a symbol of Putin's invasion and how divisive everything has become and how Russia has been weaponizing Borsh as part of its wartime propaganda in this very ugly way and how Ukraine finally got UNESCO uh, uh, UNESCO heritage status for it and uh, how I changed in the process of thinking and cooking borscht uh, and eating it with my Ukrainian friends in the aftermath of, of this horrible brutal. How did um, Russia, Russia use it in its propaganda? I, I haven't gotten to that chapter yet, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about how borscht factored into that. Well, at the start of, uh, you know, the war started in 2014 with Putin's uh, invasion, Putin's war uh, war in eastern Ukraine. And someone from the Minister of Culture tweeted, oh, borscht is a Russian natural dish, it's our dish. Mm. And of course, Ukrainians got extremely upset and there was a whole Twitter storm. Um, and the kind of the dispute has been going on since. Because you have to remember that a lot of the dishes were eaten in different regions long before the current nation states or national borders existed. So borscht is a common dish uh, in Poland as well, Lithuania. So a lot of Russians considered it their own. But since Russia, Russian officials started using it as just to goad Ukrainians, hey, listen, you know, the borscht is ours. Um, and then um, when, when, when the, the current round of war started, um, there's been a fierce battle from Ukrainians to get it inscribed in UNESCO's intangible heritage list as a Ukrainian mm-hmm. dish. And they petitioned and they finally, finally got it. And then again, you know, Russian, Rus- Russian spokespeople and officials were like, oh yeah, those Ukrainians, you know, borscht doesn't belong to them, blah, 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 blah. So it was completely weaponized for political, um, for political purposes. And it was really ugly from the Russian part. Like, That's fascinating. It's not, it's not the ugliest thing they've done. I mean, you know, no, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. But yeah. It's, yeah, so it's but Ukrainians, you know, very proudly defended it, and uh, they were very proud of this UNESCO inscription. And borscht just has this tremendous symbolic meaning mm-hmm. for Ukrainians. So, but as a Russian person or Russian Jewish American person, I kind of had to give it up. You know, I oh. stopped thinking about it in Russian. I stopped, you know, even cooking the recipes that I knew as a Russian. Mm-hmm. I started researching it in Ukrainian discovering you know all these other regional recipes so it was kind of part of internal decolonization for me mm-hmm. i tried to kind of not not have this imperial arrogance over russian um and it was like a real learning process it's so isn't that fascinating how symbolism factors into food and how we experience food i mean i guess that's what your book is all about is just this what we're bringing to it psychologically which is a great segue uh, into this podcast because the premise of this podcast is I ask people what they had for lunch and then we try to do a therapy session. So Anya, without further ado, may I ask you, what did you have for lunch today? Um, okay, so here's the deal. I've been, I just spent two and a half months in Istanbul okay. in my apartment uh, where there are a lot of things that I missed and I couldn't have. So what I had for lunch was um, uh, an American slice from a slice shop and because I really missed it so much. And I kind of like, I take them cold from the store and I reheat them just slightly in the toaster oven. I hate it to be like molten, but it's, it was just perfect. Um, and that was like a drug that I missed. Then I also had something else that I really missed was a corn tortilla. Okay. With some queso oaxaqueño. 
Uh-huh. and some salsa verde that Wow. I had in my fridge from before I left. Um, and and no, interestingly, both dishes are in my book. I have a chapter on pizza, the Neapolitan pizza, not the slice. And I have a chapter on tortillas and mole. Uh, so it was kind of like reconnecting to something that to me is like deeply New York. And I also had a tamale because our pizza, our, our local slice shop is run by Mexicans. And they Okay. also serve really delicious tamales, which is like a very, very Queen's situation, right? So like, yeah, I kind of just got a fix of everything that I missed. Wow. Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. But so you live in Queens, and based on what you just said. Um, so have you been living in Queens for a long time? Yeah, for like almost 30 years in Jackson Heights, which is you know, the most, most multicultural neighborhood in the States. Well, um, my husband and I are moving back from LA back to New York this summer. So I'm going to have to come up to Jackson Heights and visit you and eat some food. Um, Absolutely. uh, well, um, immediately, I mean, I, I immediately thought of at least for the slice and the tortilla that there's like a base of a bread. Or like a like a bread like substance with cheese on top and some kind of sauce. Uh and so I just thought that was interesting in terms of like construction
the Mexicans sort of started coming a little bit later, but um, that was a real revelation, you mm-hmm. know, especially the corn tortilla. Right. Just kind of toasting it uh, either over open flames, which I do. I don't even use a kamal. Oh, yeah, I, I like to do I that love, too. I love the way it gets kind of scorched. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something just so kind of primal and healing and incredible about it, just eating the tortilla even by itself. And of course, when you put melted cheese on top, oh my God. It's funny because I read your book, your book, your first book. I know it's not your first book, but your your memoir came out in 2013, right? The Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. And I read it when it came out. And the thing that stayed with me, because I was was walking the dog with my husband this morning, I was telling him about you. And I remember this, and I hope I'm getting this right. But I remember when you came from the Soviet Union to the U.S. and you tasted a strawberry um, from the American supermarket that you couldn't believe how it didn't have any of the flavor that the strawberries that you grew up with. And I can't help but remember that as you're talking about coming to America and eating slices. And I, th- I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience of the food that you tasted in America when you first got here and, and how it surprised you um, in terms of where you were coming from. Well, we came from, uh, we came from uh, a country, you know, with a lot of deprivations and food shortages. And food was an object of this incredible longing and desire. Like I ate banana maybe three times in my life. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd never heard of an avocado. And the strawberries that you ate were in summer and you picked them in your own dacha, you know, someone's or your relative's, you know, country house. Uh, you couldn't get strawberries in the store. Mm-hmm. It's not, not something that they sold. It's something that you picked and it had a lot of intensity and all the vegetables, as a northern Nordic country, or it used to be before climate change, uh, all the all the vegetables had a very short growing season, but they were very intense. Like this, I still remember the dill, the cucum- cucumbers, the little new potatoes. So there we are in Philadelphia in 1974. It's the land of plenty. It's like the reason we immigrated, so we could just you know actually have consumer goods and all kinds of foods that we wanted. And I remember that kind of tomb-like funerary chill of the air-conditioned American supermarket. Mm-hmm. And confronted with just endless choices. If you look, uh, most behind, of the if you look behind me, I have a poster of the dollar store, if you could see it behind oh, me. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. The, the Gorski painting uh, or, or a photograph of just like rows and rows and rows of an American supermarket. Because I remember that from your book too, yeah. And what you would, what really struck me is that like everything was shrink-wrapped. Uh, like again, it was 1974, the supermarkets were different, like all the bananas, everything was you know, in some kind of plastic. And then there were like the hot dogs that tasted of nothing but nitrates. Mm-hmm. And then Russian immigrants, you know, they had no idea. Like they would like buy floor wax and think it's butter. And <laughs> or they would, eat, they would eat like, you know, Dristan or like, you know, something chocolate pills, you know, diuretics, not thinking it was chocolate. So there was all these like funny stories of misadventures. Mm. Um, so it was it was it was kind of a culture shock my mom was super curious about everything she would just buy all this weird stuff like i remember she bought this like pickled ham that was like so <laughs> disgusting or velvita imagine if you've never seen velvita they're like this cascade of you know day glow neon orange thing on top of food so it was it was curious well, I thought that that was such an interesting reversal in your book that you came to this land of plenty and you come to the supermarket where it just seems like such bounty, but then you kind of taste it and you kind of realize, well, maybe having a lot of something, you know, of just generic mass products isn't as great as having a little of something wonderful. So that always stayed with me a bit. Um, 
It's interesting. My family is all Russian Jews too, from different parts. You know, I have a great grandmother came from Minsk, Russia. Um, but you know, I'm third generation or second generation. So by the time it came to me, my parents had been so assimilated that there's no, you know, Russian food in our family. We don't eat anything that would be recognizable, except for like certain Jewish dishes, like kasha varnishkis. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up with and things like that. But I'm curious, like for you as you've spent more and more time in America, are there certain dishes that you've um, clung on to that you still make for yourself from your childhood that, that celebrates your initial heritage? Or do you feel like you've become more and more assimilated the longer you've lived here? No, I mean, we still, we still make a lot of Russian or Soviet food. I mean, borscht mm -hmm. is one example, except, you know, now, now it's, it's been so fraught. We, we make salad Olivier, which is a, Mayonnaise, laden potato salad. We, mm -hmm. we make, uh, you know, you can go to a Russian store in, in New York, like Netcost or uh, the stores in Brighton Beach, and everything that you miss is there. Like, right. I love the frozen Siberian dumplings, pelmeni. Mm -hmm. You see, I'm lucky that my mom lives two blocks away. So nice. she's the one that usually cooks all the Russian food. You know, I don't mm -hmm. have to, I don't have to think about it. But uh, yeah, and, um, but also, Again, in Jackson Heights, it's it's amazing. I have momos for lunch and some complicated Bangladeshi chat <laughs> and uh, the best Thai food in the States for dinner, you know, like some exotic isan curry. So like one's preferences, you know, one's palate is really globalized, mm -hmm. I think generally. And this is one thing that I address in National Dish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that me, I'm I'm like this kind of rootless cosmopolitan who just eats anything all over the world um, because we immigrated and we lived in an empire. I don't have a strong sense of national identity, uh, but what is it like for people who do or who do on occasion uh, as, you know, nationalism rises, mm -hmm. unfortunately, uh, all across the world? Uh, and how does food represent who we are? in this completely globalized uh, era of hyphenated identities. Well, it's making me think, my husband and I went to Germany and it was my first and only time there. Um, and we were in Berlin for a trip uh, and it was during the World Cup. And I remember it was the first year that Germans were allowed to show national pride or you know, there's some kind of law changed that year where they could celebrate Germany being in the World Cup. And uh, we were on like a train and there were, just all these Germans like in their soccer uniforms waving flags, like really rowdy. And that was my first real experience um, of nationalism in a way that was so vivid. I mean, I guess obviously in America, we have our versions of those moments with July 4th and- No, super, absolutely. Super, yeah. And what I write in the book, nationalism can be sort of shifty and transactional and it depends on the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think the World Cup, you know, or important sports matches where countries compete as opposed mm -hmm. to teams, is one manifestation mm -hmm. like suddenly we're all you know american or whoever whatever team we root for but for myself it's always complicated because i'm russian i live part-time in istanbul in the states uh i love spain it's my adapted country so like who is my home team mm -hmm. like i don't root for russia because it's politically reprehensible i don't root for the states because they don't play very good soccer <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, who am I? Something suddenly, where are your allegiances? Right. What What brought you to Istanbul, if I may ask? I'm curious what the connection was there. 
I kind of went for the first time in the 80s and I just fell in love with the city. It's so beautiful with the Bosphorus. It's all water, gorgeous views, wonderful people. And we kept returning and I wanted something with a beautiful view. And I bought an apartment with a view of the Bosphorus. <laughs> and it's okay. 2007 and it's, it's been amazing. That's a wow. That's very inspiring. Um, well, let's get into the book a little bit because I know that you're probably excited to talk about it. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the process of writing it and where you began and how it all sort of unfolded for you as you worked on it. Thanks. So the idea was to feature uh, certain dishes from certain countries, you know, and I had to choose and just show how the process of you know, how does a dish become national? How do people feel about it? Uh, so I chose to start in Paris because mm -hmm. French Revolution is really something that gave the world the idea of a nation. Uh, as I mentioned, nationalism, nations didn't really exist until then. There were empires and there were other kind of identities. Um, and France was really a country that started the first explicitly national conversation about food, equating as food with the country as opposed to like with the kingdom or with the royal family or um, the uh, uh, cookbook La Cuisine Francoise by uh, La Varenne is the mm -hmm. first cookbook ever uh, in the 17th century to use a national title, French mm -hmm. cookbook, because, you know, food was very cosmopolitan, at least courtly cuisine, you know, food that was recorded. So I started in France and I looked at a national dish called pot à feu which oh, yeah. is I've made that boiled, before. Yeah. a boiled dinner, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of on the one hand very universal because so many other countries have meat and broth. On the other hand, the French explicitly made it, you know, through discussions, through writing, a symbol of France, a symbol of unity. You know, it has meat, vegetables, broth, you know, all in one dish. So it kind of represented equality, you know, this Republican values of fraternity, equality. Um, and I wanted to see how it uh, it fared in globalized Paris. Mm -hmm. And as you said, you know, people is is kind of Paris is the trendy food world at least. It's like Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So people say, oh yeah, but I thought, yeah, my grandma made it. But uh, yeah, how about we go and get some bao buns or oh, yeah. very cool mezcal place? And wow, you know, chocolate babka is like really huge in Paris. So I found that you know Paris has become a really transnational city. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a relief because it was used to be so kind of pompous and full of its own sure. food supremacy. And I kind of never liked it for that reason. But I felt sort of that it came down from its pedestal and people were much more open to other flavors. But it left the question, what happens to the whole idea of national pride in cuisine? So next chapter, I moved to Naples. And in Naples, I examined the iconic specialties. One is pizza, of course which is, you know, indelibly tied to Naples. You know, no, no other country can really claim it. No other region can really claim it in that form. But also pasta al pomodoro, pasta and tomato sauce. And again, as the first, the first recorded recipe is in Naples. Mm, there's this whole kind of tradition of the Neapolitan poor eating pasta by hand in tomato sauce. But again, I find a lot of mythologists there. And were you nervous when you were debunking some of these mythologies? Were you nervous that, you know, you'd get pushed back from these cultures or people would write you angry letters? Like, of course, pizzas from Naples, you know, whatever the mythology was. Did you... Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, the mythology actually is, is that pizza was like this Italian national dish for so right. long and it was connected to Italy. Well, there was no Italy. 
right? Until 1860s, until the unification, it was a collection of duchies and papal states. And um, and the South was sort of scorned mm-hmm. and mistreated in the process of unification. So a lot of immigrants, there was so much chaos and poverty, a lot of immigrants left. There was, I think, the largest immigration in recorded history. Uh, starting in the 1860s, they went to the Americas. They opened uh, pizza joints eventually. Mm-hmm. Well, in a way, pizza became popular here first because until the end of the 19th century, Northern Italians really uh, dissed pizza. I mean, like the guy <laughs> who wrote Pinocchio called Lodi, he said pizza is some kind of complicated filth. Uh, <laughs> so it really became a national dish very recently, right? So um, from there, I moved to Tokyo to talk about ramen, but also to talk about rice. And ramen is another uh, interesting story. It was a Chinese originated dish, obviously. Um, now, but... even that idea, I mean, would a lot of Japanese people be outraged to hear that ramen started no, in they, China? They, they know it. It was called Shina, Shina Soba. I mean, okay. they know the history, but what they claim is like, we made it Japanese. And I asked people, like, what makes it Japanese? They said, well, you know, the way it's constructed, the tara, the toppings, the broth, you know, we took a dish, but now it's now it's Japanese. But even Momofuku Ando, the inventor of the instant ramen, who is mm-hmm. deified in Japan, he was a Thai, he was born in Taiwan. And <laughs> he had the Chinese name. And in fact, you know, it might be that some other Chinese guy, also from Taiwan, invented it first and then sold the patent to him. So, wow. yeah, it's, and so my other dish there is gohan, which is Japanese cooked rice, which is considered like the symbol of the Japanese culture and of the Japanese self. Um, so I look at that. From there, I moved to Spain to look mm-hmm. at tapas and all the stories about tapas and especially jamon, the ham, uh, which is, was a very powerful sim- symbol of Catholicism, so mm-hmm. much so that the Inquisition used it, uh, you know, in the 15th, 16th centuries to root out false Christians, converted Muslims and Jews. Yeah, uh, I remember that from your book. And I was thinking I would have um, done pretty well because as a Jewish person who eats ham, I would have been like, ooh, Hiberico ham, this is delicious. Yeah. (laughs) But there are always like inquisition proceedings, you know, asking people what they eat. So like, you know, the idea of you are who you, wait, you eat, you are who you, what you eat becomes like very literal right so mm-hmm. there i moved to oaxaca and i look wow so the- by the way you had the world's greatest vacation writing this book you got to go to all these places and how long were you staying in each of these places when you would go a month a month wow and so, so did you get no, to? It wasn't, sorry it wasn't vacation it was really hard work i mean i interviewed like three people a day i wrote i you know but yeah oh. i mean they are nice cities Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you worked, but still, I mean, it sounds like a dream project to get to travel the world in this way and eat and talk to people. So I'm jealous while at the same time impressed. So you got to Oaxaca and then what did you unpack there? I unpacked mole, which is a symbol of Mexican identity. This mm-hmm. multi-ingredient sauce um, that's really important and how it represents Mexican Mexican uh, Mexico's like sort of fusion heritage of Spanish colonial and indigenous influences. But I also looked at it politically, how this fusion called Mestizaje is undergoing a revision because it was always kind of white leaning, mm-hmm. with preference, you know, for being, you know, European and white and with sort of this drive to acculturate 
indigenous population into this sort of uh, identity that was constructed by white people. And I also look at the corn tortilla as a basis you know, of indigenous livelihood and indigenous identity and what happens to the tortilla because for you know ever since the colonizers arrived in Mexico 16th century they've been trying to kind of push the local population into eating wheat and planting wheat because wheat is so associated with the holy communion bread obviously is so crucial to it and um how the tortilla really survived this this negative onslaught for almost five centuries and how it finally triumphed it's, it's a very moving story and then from there I moved to Istanbul and I make a potluck Mm-hmm. Uh, an Ottoman potluck because you know Turkey is another very new nation until 1923 uh, when the Ottoman Empire was defeated in World War II and was uh, you know on collapsing there was no country called, called Turkey right mm-hmm. it was you know that entire region was dominated by the Ottoman Empire which was very multicultural so the current borders you know like Syria Lebanon Israel Palestine I mean, nothing nothing existed until the right. 20th century. So how do you define national cuisines, you know, in this kind of former melting pot cultures and what happens, you know, so I look at the mythologies of the city, you know, how different dishes were Jewish, Armenian, Greek. So that was really fascinating. That makes me think a little bit about the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict in terms of um, some of the dishes that, you know, you'll see somebody claim something as an Israeli salad or call something an Israeli salad. And then you'll see a lot of pushback on the internet, you know, people like, oh, what makes that Israeli? You know, I've seen, I mean, I've experienced that with some of my food writing. So what you're talking about, it feels like it has so many um, pertinences in terms of not just the ones you wrote about, but even just beyond that, it just becomes such a big issue too. But what was the last one you were going to say? The last, the last meal, the, the original concept for the dish was, for the book, National Dish, was to be something like the world in six meals or the world in 10 meals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in every chapter, I make a meal, and sometimes they're very unexpected, like in Oaxaca, for instance, my partner of 30 years and I get married in a shamanistic oh. ceremony. Congratulations. So my, thank you. My last meal in uh, for the book is borscht, you know, and, and making right. it with Ukrainian friends. And it's very tragic, obviously. It's an epilogue that I really wish I didn't have to write. My original idea was to do an American Thanksgiving in Jackson Heights and just ah. How you know different cultures that live here appropriate and uh, internalize the idea of Thanksgiving, but as I started it, the war happened and it felt like you know borscht felt like something that was tragically inevitable. Um, it's really something I wish I didn't have to work on um, in that in those kind of horrible circumstances. But uh, you know, in the end of the chapter, I share borscht uh, with, with Ukrainian friends. And I should show this cover. I mean, people can't see right now because obviously this is a podcast and not a visual thing. But you have a gorgeous cover of your cookbook that was done by the New Yorker cartoonist Roz Chast, who I'm a huge fan of. And I'm curious. And then it shows on the cover all the dishes you're talking about, ramen, pizza, mole, tapas, patafa. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about the cover and getting uh, working with Roz Chast on it? Oh, it was an amazing experience. My My editor at Penguin Press... Uh, told asked me to send him some visual mood pieces, just what I had in mind, and I kept sending him Rose Chast's work. <laughs> I said, well, I want it to be something like this and something like this and something like Rose. He said, "Well, you know, why don't we just ask Rose?" And I was like, "Is it even possible? Would she even do it?" And um, they said, "Sure, yeah, 
we share the same literary agent and um wow that's so cool very excited about it and um she basically with rose chast you don't you know you don't micromanage her you just tell her what you know she reads the book and she um and so she came she came with several we had like i think six or seven different versions really i i really wanted that grid you know she does these grids um and it, it just makes me smile every time and we happened to be in Vienna very recently and she was there. I saw it on her Instagram and my boyfriend knows her because he's also a writer and they did events together. So he reached out to her. It was very funny. And we met at this old cafe Sperl and she didn't realize who I was. And I said, Oh, Rose, I love you. I love the cover of this book. And I whip up the book and she says, Oh, do you happen to know the author? This woman, Anya from Bremson. I said, no, I'm the author. I'm Anya. And she said, <laughs> I can't believe it. So we became great friends. She's she yeah. And it's it just it's kind of like its own statement because mm-hmm. it makes the book look intellectual, funny. It's just it transmits like everything that uh that you want to say about the book, you know, having a rose a rose yeah. cover. I agree. It looks amazing. Well, I was curious because I, I'm having read your your memoir and now having this. In terms of the um, journalistic aspect of working on this new book, um, because it feels like the the memoir was a lot about your own life and your own journey, and then this book is really about re- a lot of it is research and doing research about these dishes. and And I'm curious, did you have a journalism background? And in terms of doing the journalism for the book, how did you even meet your sources? How did you go about that aspect of writing it? Well, yeah, I've been I've been writing uh, for magazines um since the 90s right i was a contributing editor at travel and leisure at food and wine now i'm a contributing writer at afar so doing this kind of travel journalism is is, is something that i do as a second nature mm-hmm. um, travel and food journalism this book went much deeper into right. sources i interviewed scientists politicians historians um but you know once once you have the proceed once you know how to reach out to people you kind of look at people whose work you like and who you admire uh, and then you reach out to them first hopefully they'll introduce you to other people but that's why i stayed in each place for a month it would be like very difficult to do in three days Uh, but you know once once you kind of settle in and start meeting people and other people come along and sometimes it's completely unexpected in every chapter it was Actually, you know, there were all these unexpected connect- connections. Like in Seville, um, we just had a mutual friend, uh, through a mutual friend, met this incredible musician, Rafa Almarcha, uh, from a very popular group called Siempre Asi. They're like the Andalusian ABBA. Andalusian ABBA. Yeah, and he was just absolutely the best connected person in the city because, like, you went around with him. Everyone says Rafa, Rafa. They would ask for autographs. So through him, you could just meet anyone. In in Oaxaca, for instance, I ended up meeting this incredible indigenous politician, the most prominent indigenous politician in Mexico, this Zapotec woman called Efrasina Cruz Mendoza, mm-hmm. and she was in Oaxacan Parliament. Now she is in the federal government. Um, and she's doing just so much for indigenous rights. And we talked about so much about tortillas, mm-hmm. whether, you know, for indigenous women, they represent the kind of domestic slavery or empowerment. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the book, the book is, has so much history, politics, uh, just social, social science, but it also, it's, it's a travelogue. 
So right. it's not that different from uh, mastering the art of Soviet cooking because mm-hmm. it's still very personal. Right, it's which I like about that. Yeah. The city, so it's not, it's not, hopefully it's not boring at all. It moves very quickly and uh, it oh, just yeah. kind of intersperses history and um, and uh, food writing and research. Was there any, were there any countries or dishes that you initially conceived of as being part of the book that ultimately didn't make it into the book or that you cut out of the book? because they didn't quite work in the same way? No, absolutely. Originally, uh, the book has six chapters, which is Paris, Naples, Tokyo, Seville, Oaxaca, Istanbul, and then New York. Uh, originally, I was planning it to have 12 chapters, but then the pandemic happened. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's a probably a big yeah. hurdle to get over to write yeah, this so, book. And in a way, the chapters were already getting kind of long. And my editor said, you know, I think I think we're fine if we just zoom in. Uh, on each culture, but I definitely wanted to go to India and work on curry because mm-hmm. it's such an important dish. Colonialism has got like everything in it. History. Mm, I wanted to go to Thailand and work on pad Thai because mm-hmm. that's a completely constructed dish. People think it's like Thai national dish, but in fact, it just dates from the 40s and it's kind of a dictatorial decree almost. You know, this dictator just said, you know, this is going to be our national dish. Oh, really? Um, I didn't know that. I wanted to go to Israel and work on hummus and the whole current, you know, hummus wars between Israelis and Palestinians. In yes. fact, you know, I wanted to go to Gaza, in fact. Um, so there were, yeah, um, I wanted to go to Korea and do kimchi, which is just mm-hmm. so important and also so important for the national brand and how country represents himself. But maybe there'll be a sequel. Yes, that sounds like a sequel to me. So what, 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 in terms of going through this journey, was there any moment that truly shocked you or surprised you about what you learned about a dish that you really didn't see coming? Or did you sort of go into this knowing a little bit about what you were going to write about? I mean, did actually physically being there uh, in these places somehow illuminate something that you wouldn't have known otherwise? Oh, there were so many moments. Everything was, in fact, surprising. And everything was so recent and so mm-hmm. constructed and often just so fake. For instance, pizza, <laughs> pizza margarita, you know, yes. there's a story about it that has the, you know, the patriotic color scheme of the Italian flag, you know, the red, red, white, and green. And it's named after this queen from Piedmonte, who after the unification, you know, in the, in the late 19th century, supposedly came to Naples, wanted pizza, had it delivered uh, to her by this uh, pizzaiolo called Raffaele Esposito, and she allowed it to it, name it after her, Pizza Margarita, right? Right. She's a Margarita who like tasted this Neapolitan pizza and approved it and loved it and loved it. Uh, and this is a story that's even mentioned in every scholarly source in like academic books. It's totally fake. There was no, <laughs> there was just no documents of any of this royal tasting. The document that the letter that uh, this pizzeria brandy, Esposito's former pizzeria, has it is a fake, and yeah, like how this. did you? But how did you discover that it was a fake? I mean, what what? I guess this is where the journalism kicks. There was in someone because... else did the academic. You know, there's this is uh, academical Zachary Novak from Harvard, and he wrote a story about it. Okay. Um, and I, I interviewed guy this this family called the Matozzi's. Uh, Antonio Matozzi, who is the biggest academic pizza expert in Naples, so he knew that it was fake as well. But you really have to talk to the right, you know, and, and this Zachary, the Harvard guy, published that study really recently. So I didn't do the research. I quote him, but it was still yeah. kind of just shocking. And it's funny in- because even the fact that somebody made up that story, like that's its own 
good story too. <laughs> that like it's actually a good story that somebody made up that story to no exactly. Sell their pizza. Yeah, it, it just shows you how myths exist for a certain reason, urban mm -hmm. myths, and all this that we need. You know, we need these constructed stories to appreciate yeah. who we are. You know, and they serve you know certain propaganda purposes. Like it was convenient for the pizzeria that invented it. It was con convenient for the Savoys for the Savoy dynasty. Uh, right. because it, it signified that Queen Margarita, who was from the north, accepted, you know, the south. It kind of, like, promoted the whole agenda of uh, unification of Italy. So, yeah, all, 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 all these stories are basically... Well, it's making me think about the United States a, a little bit, too, because even just within our country and within our states, there's so much mythology about where dishes come from and who owns Chile and whether beans should be in Chile or whether, uh, you know, Alice Waters started the farm to table movement or just all these mythologies that feel like they're such a, so ingrained in us. And I mean, it's really making me think about that, but I'm curious in terms it's worth of money to, to, to entities, right? It's worth money. I mean, yeah. these are, you know, these are, these are commercial, uh, these myths, you know, get commodified yes. and commercialized. And that's why you have this battles between nations who owns certain dishes. Mm -hmm. Because you know the hummus industry is huge, and it's you know an Israeli industry like Sabra, and right. you know these these kind of things, and uh, all these countries. You know every year UNESCO inscribes another dish from another country in its uh, into its intangible heritage list, and always some kind of brouhaha mm -hmm. uh, erupts over this. You know they gave dolma stuffed you know stuffed grape leaves to yes. Azerbaijan. Whereas, you know, it's made in Armenia, Turkey, all over that region. So, right. and Armenia happens to be Azerbaijan's mortal enemy at the moment. So it's kind of profit entangled with politics. It's it's very complicated by fascinating situation. And that's what I research in National Dish. And is is there a dish from the United States that it would be the equivalent of the, the ones that you did from Italy and Japan and stuff? I mean, what I'm trying to think, like, as we were talking what would be the dish that the U.S. claims as its most prized or most um, national dish? Well, Is there the one? hamburger, obviously. Oh, right, of course. And we have the patent, you, know, you, can, you can't <laughs> yeah. really say that someone else. So the hamburger, you know, is, is an obvious example. Hot right. dog, not so much because I have it in Germany. Right. I would say barbecue in terms okay. of like being a symbolic dish, the dish that reveals so much about race, politics, Colonialism. I mean, it's 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 an incredibly important dish, and I contemplated having a chapter on barbecue. But there are authors in the South mm -hmm. that are so far ahead of me. I felt like I was just being an intruder. But mm -hmm. to me, to me, it's just a stupendously important part so, of America's history. So when you finished this book, I mean, how did you know you were done? Because it feels like you could probably just keep going and going and researching. And so, did you have to stop yourself, or did you just sort of? get as deep as you wanted to go and then move on to the next chapter? I think in a way the narrative dictates itself. Mm -hmm. You could go deeper, but will the reader want to read it? Right, I right. I mean, you know, as an author, it's very different from doing short form journalism. Mm -hmm. When you have a chapter that's like 1,500, 15,000 words, um, you ask yourself, what is going to turn the page? What right. is it going to propel the reader to go? And in the end, it's always the personal story. Yes. So people want to know what, how did she settle into this place and what happened and who she talked to. So you have to kind of balance the history and the personal. And after a while, the narrative just kind of moves you along. You, you, you kind of just know. 
Well, I'm curious. We we kind of um, skipped over your biography uh, to talk about this book, and I, I know we were running out of time, but I am curious in terms of your own career. You mentioned working for for uh, magazines for 30 years, and um, how did you get started as a food writer? It was a total accident. I was a concert pianist. That was my first oh. career. I went to Juilliard. That's all I wanted to do in life. Uh, that's all that mattered to me. Mm. And then I had a hand injury, like so oh. many athletes and musicians do. And I kind of had to le le relearn from scratch. And I felt like my career was getting away from me. Um, and that was like the early 80s. And to make money and thinking of what I'm doing next, uh, I speak Italian. So I took on a project of translating an Italian cookbook, I think for Doubleday. And okay. it was before computers, you know, I was writing it on the you know, three by five cards, writing down recipes. Wow. With your hand injury. That sounds like a lot of hand work. Well, I mean, not, not as bad as playing piano. Right. Uh, and then I thought, oh, you know, there's money in cookbooks. Maybe, maybe we should write our own. And my ex-boyfriend and I conceived the idea for Please to the Table, which was my first cookbook mm -hmm. about the cuisines of the former Soviet Union, which was not former, which was still existing then. It was a fascinating idea to show that there's so much more to this cuisine than borscht and dumplings. And there's Uzbekistan and Georgia and all these different spicy cuisines. And the publisher who bought it was Workman. And they oh, just yeah. bought Silver Palette, which was really like the zeitgeisty cookbook. I and have a cookbook that's with Artisan that was under Workman. Uh, so uh, I've, I've been in that building before. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yes. So suddenly I had this career and it was like a 500 page book. Wow. Research and research and got the very first James Beard Award when they just launched the James Beard oh Award. Oh my God. Wow. So that, wow. that's pretty impressive. The very first ceremony and the very first awards. Wow. Yeah. It was in a boat, I think. <laughs> I remember. And um, so then I did another cookbook on the Pacific Rim because I was living in Australia at the time. Then I did a book on Latin America called Fiesta. Then I did a cookbook called uh, Around the, oh, I forgot what his name, The Greatest, <laughs> I think, Around the World in 80 Dishes. Um, and that was about the iconic dishes of the world, you know, and it kind of relates to national dish. And then, then I started writing for magazines like Travel Leisure, and I was on the masthead. So I combined the cookbooks and, and, um, this kind of glossy magazine travel and food journalism, which was really fun. But something inside me was telling me, look, you know, you grew up in this incredibly repressive political system where food was always an object of shortage and desire. I had this whole other life in which, you know, I taste a banana only like twice a year mm -hmm. and I've never seen an avocado. Like I was this other person. So to tell that story um, about growing up in that country, in the USSR, I wrote, uh, I switched genres and I, I, I wrote this long form memoir, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, that became kind of a hit, you know, it was translated, it's been translated into 19 languages. Wow, that's so Ten cool. Years, people are still reading it. And um, so they kind of launched another, another side of my career, which is much more serious uh, narrative nonfiction. It's interesting you talk about growing up in a repressive regime because as you were talking about um, your life and you're talking about living in Australia and having a place in Istanbul, it seems like you kind of broke free and just like like a rubber band like shot out and wanted to experience the world. And I'm curious, like in the little bit of psychology I'm going to get into, but um, did do you feel like 
your interest in travel and seeing the world is a result of that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I never, one never forgets growing up behind the Iron Curtain with a sense that you can never leave and you can never see the world and the tremendous longing like my mother felt. I mean, culturally, she felt she knew all these countries like Paris, Rome, uh, through books, through novels, through, you know, glimpses into foreign films and yet to be just stuck in this one reality. Mm, I had this perpetual wanderlust you know I, I from the time I remember myself I wanted to be a foreigner like mm. I traded chewing gum you know and foreign chewing gum yes I just you know I wanted to be someone else I didn't want to be that Soviet person in the drab gray reality and that's that feeling is always with me I think that's just kind of what propels me uh because now like I don't want to be an American well I do but you know I don't want to be staying here all the time like I always want to leave wherever yes. I am well, yeah. even where you live in Queens, it sounds like you chose to live in a place surrounded by variety and multiple it's cultures. It's amazing. Like, you know, it's, yeah. it's like a day trip to Ecuador or Oaxaca or you know, Puebla or northern Thailand to be in this neighborhood you know, with all the shops and all the people. And I love hearing all these different languages. We have 168 languages in Jackson Heights. It was, uh -huh. It's been documented, you know, like two different dialects of Quechua you know, some kind of <laughs> extinct form of Tajik. I mean, linguists actually study this place as some sort of laboratory. So it's it's always a thrill to walk on the streets and just see a new food stall or, uh, you know, a new Thai Isan place. Well, so just the, I, the I imagery, like I, yeah. I'm, I'm living through all the traveling and all the... Sorry, do you want to just... Do you, can you hear the siren? Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's good, it's good <laughs> background noise, yeah. Through all the traveling... I do, you know, both in my own neighborhood and, and uh, in uh, outside the USA. Um, I feel like I'm fulfilling something from yes. childhood, that long dream. And I, I'm always aware of it. I never forget it. It makes me think of like the Wizard of Oz um, and the black and white world and then kind of landing in Oz and then everything becomes color because just the way you described the drab, gray, Soviet childhood. Well, um, Anya, this was a delight. Every episode begins with what did you have for lunch? But every episode ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? Oh, I'm going to Damaka, which oh, was I've, I've been there. Yeah. yeah. With the, so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it because Indian food, obviously, is something I missed in Istanbul as well. And I'm reconnecting with good friends and it will be something great. Do you like spicy food? Yes, I do. Because when I went there, I I knew that it was going to be spicy, but we had the biryani, and I don't. I almost felt like it was either like a sexual experience or a psychotic experience. But uh, the heat waves that like washed over me, I was Why sweating. They, I know it's it's. I've had that. I almost ended up in a hospital in Amsterdam at an Indonesian place because I ordered a dish, you know, extra spicy because I can take spicy. And it was just off the charts and I felt yes. like I was talking and yeah, I started sweating and I just, I just felt like I was just being strangled and they, well, they knew about it. So what you have to do is you have to drink some thick fruit nectar. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's the best thing. Or milk. I mean, I don't, heard milk. Yeah. Water, water is the worst because just it carries the spice all over your intestines uh, and uh. white rice, either white rice or bread. But yeah, but the thick, you know, they gave me some kind of thick, you know, mango nectar or, and that, you know, but it took like two hours too. And Damaka also had goat testicles on the menu, I remember, because my husband was a little squeamish about those. But... Yeah, I'm looking forward to those. I love those. 
Okay. Well, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and congratulations on your book. It's really exciting. Thanks so much. All right. I'll see you soon. Take care. All right. That's it for today's episode of Lunch Therapy. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like and subscribe and leave nice comments and do all of that stuff. Um, if you want to follow my food adventures, give me a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Amateur Gourmet and subscribe to my newsletter, amateurgourmet.substack.com. All right. We'll see you back here next week. Have a good one.